Welcome to Courageous Conversations, a podcast exploring the intimate side of activism. I'm Gillian Riley. And I'm Jen Warren. And through these interviews, we seek to understand what it really takes to show up and make change during this critical time in history. In an effort to become more effective change makers. Yes. Ultimately, our aim is to promote authentic engagement as a vital component of social justice and social change. Mbongisene Butelezi is the executive director of PARI, the Public Affairs Research Institute, a Johannesburg-based nonprofit that studies the effectiveness of state institutions in service delivery and infrastructure to better support South African citizens. An academic through and through, Mbongiseni is interested in how the state interfaces with citizens in areas that include land restitution, the role of traditional leaders in governance, heritage, and public archives. In this interview, Mbongiseni explores the roots of Zulu identity and the extent to which one of the most storied cultures in South Africa was a story told to him, but not about him. Mbongiseni's story is shaped by violence, the acute violence of a childhood spent in KwaZulu-Natal, as well as the so-called slow violence of modern-day South Africa and indeed much of the world. In exploring the construct of Zulu identity, Mbongiseni illuminates a much wider issue. What's at stake for the powerful when they construct stories of the past and impose them on people in the present? Hi, I'm Mbongiseni Butelezi. I work at the Public Affairs Research Institute with a burning passion for social justice. I'm curious about the path from complete <laughs> into social justice. Oh, it's a long, complicated story, but I'll write about it one day. It begins for me with an experience I had when I was 12 years old. And arriving that evening on the first day of boarding school, somebody throttled me. I almost passed out. Wow. And they throttled me because they'd asked my surname. And they'd asked where I came from. And I came from Ulundi, where the leader of the Ngata Freedom Party, Mangosuti Butelezi, comes from. And when this guy heard those two things, he just grabbed me by the throat. And I spent many, many years trying to understand what that was about. But that was about the political violence that was taking place in the country at the time. And the school I went to, it was a place to which a lot of kids were sent by their parents to get them out of political violence. It's called Inkamana High School. And I understood that there was all this violence going on. But as I began to do research in later years, I realized what that violence was about and the dynamics and the histories and the narratives being used in order to fuel the violence, which then led to a thesis and eventually even the PhD, really tracking how people are thinking through their identities towards the end of apartheid, how political figures were using history, were using stories, and then getting completely outraged and then starting to push back, I started writing, and then getting in trouble. And somehow, ever since then, trouble has just always followed me. And then mm. thinking, okay, I must be doing something right for people to get angry about what I'm doing. I was also challenging the ways in which scholarship on black cultures had been done by white scholars, did not speak languages, were writing stuff that they were reading in translation, and mm. saying, look, this is just not good enough. So that was always trying to combine my intellectual interests with activist interests. Okay, I'm still at you getting throttled and how identity gets constructed and I'm curious about yours because you're, <laughs> I mean, at that point, a young boy being sent off to boarding school in Natal. Were you aware of the story, if you will, that was being told at that time or did you feel somehow separated from that? 
Yes and no. I mean, I grew up in Ulundi, the capital of the Bantustan. Now, what was very curious to me at that time was I was always aware that there was a threat against people from Ulundi, where I came from, and wasn't quite fully aware what that was about. It and only your, made sense years later. Your parents were not constructing your identity or your story, if you will, around those politics around the past? No, they'd never been involved in, say, politics. They just lived in the town. And being sent off to boarding school, was that also for your own safety to get you out of that situation or was that not? No, was just in a fact, the boarding school thing was my choice. I applied oh, okay. to the boarding school. My parents were not educated. My mother had never been to school. My dad only went as far as grade four or something. They just always had the sense that they wanted their children to do better than they did. So you were quite driven? Yeah, I think in many ways that's how my journey has been. The turning point, in fact, for me was in my honours year, we did a theatre project in a prison and I worked with maximum security prisoners. God, I had just a burning passion and to combine my intellectual abilities with the other people to fight for a more just world. And so we trying to find a way of creating a dialogue that would improve the ways in which people who were living with HIV and AIDS were treated in prison. And so we were using Augusto Ball and Paolo Freire's Theatre of the Oppressed, those kinds of methods to create a space where the dialogue could happen. And so, yeah, I began then to really become very interested in using methodologies similar to that, where you partner with people who are in circumstances where they don't have the kinds of access to power yeah. to be able to amplify their voices so that they can be heard. And so has that featured in your academic work, that methodology, that co-creation, if you will? Where that has gone in terms of the academic work, largely, is really working with other people and helping other people's careers. Where it's been a lot more successful is in the activists on the ground, people that I've been able to work with quite successfully and not appropriate their struggles, but mm. help amplify their struggles and help. <laughs> so the example I would give, I think the most successful example, when I was at the Center for Law and Society and we started turning our attention to the Ingonyama Trust, They'd been labor tenants on this land that lodged a claim to the land back in 1998. And at the point at which I learned about their case, the Zulu king was trying to build his eighth palace on that piece of land, and they were going to be removed from the land. So I thought, well, we need to intervene on behalf of these people, but also working with them in the intervention. So we started bringing media attention to their plight and started bringing in lawyers to fight their case. Eventually, I think, we've succeeded in doing something. The Zulu king and backed off. Eventually they gave up the Eighth Palace project. <laughs> and then we got the Legal Resources Center involved and their case is now in court. Mm. You describe a childhood shaped, certainly influenced by an awareness of violence and of power struggles taking mm. place all around you. And as I'm listening to that story, I'm thinking about to what extent there's a connection or I mean, growing up in the way that you did. What do you take from what you've been so deeply touched by into this current work? I mean, the one thing, my interest in those questions of identity and questions of violence has stayed with me for a long time. I've done mm -hmm. a lot of work with the Nelson Mandela Foundation around dialogue to reduce harm in the world. In part, it comes from 
trying to understand the Ngata violence of the 80s and the 90s, I had to go back to the, the rise of the Zulu Kingdom in Chaga and the violence there uh, to understand what was happening in the 1980s and 1990s, which I think has shaped my perspective. I mean, the one thing I strongly object to are these ascribed identities, I'm supposedly Zulu. Now, to understand how Zulu identity gets imposed on my people, the Butelezi, it gets forged in violence in the 18-teens, 1820s, when we are conquered by Shaga in the Zulu kingdom. And there's a suppression of alternative identities and mm. alternative narrations of identity that takes place over 200 years, which then begins to re-emerge towards the end of apartheid. The power that the Zulu establishment had held looked tenuous. People begin to narrate other identities and to say, actually, 200 years ago, our people were conquered. It's that understanding of how identities are ascribed and the power at play in that kind of ascription of identity, which then makes me want to challenge the narratives of today, to understand those identities and narratives forged in violence. Now, what's happening today with the Zulu King and the Ngonyama Trust is that those identities that have been imposed and people have grown up and have simply accepted the identification as Zulu. That then allows the Zulu king to position himself in the way that he has and to threaten violence. That threat of violence always hangs over us. He says he's going to mobilize Zulus to challenge the government and trying to take the land of the Zulu. The question that arises for me is, okay, who are the Zulu? The Zulu identity is something that doesn't take the current form until the 1930s, the 1940s. And people are then asked in the name of that identity to actually take actions that are detrimental, I think, to their own interests in the longer run. The Ngonyama Trust and what it's doing in Wazul Natal is something that needs to be challenged. It's expropriating people's land and it is enriching a few at the expense of the many. So the threat of violence hangs over South Africa, doesn't it? It does. Whether that's intimate violence or political violence or cultural violence, mm. it strikes me as a significant feature of the South African collective identity that violence looms in the distance if you challenge. How do we manage that threat of violence to those who are looking to challenge the identities that are given to them by others, whatever that might be? In fact, the one thing that has really been striking to me, the light bulb moment, what we've done is we've not recreated the state. There was 1994 and it seemed like a new moment, but actually, so we kept the continuity of the state and we've just been tinkering with it, trying to change it. Mm. So in many ways, structurally deeply embedded in our state is the mm. colonial state. The biggest thing in South Africa, and the reason why violence is so pervasive, is that we have not dealt with the traumas of apartheid, of colonialism, and add to that the fact that we are unable to create opportunities. There are people who are simply left out, left behind. I think those are two of the biggest factors in creating this pressure cooker effect. There are a lot of very traumatized people who carry traumas from apartheid. One of the ways in which we could have dealt with that better is to take the recommendations of the TRC and to take forward the recommendation that perpetrators who had not come forward, had not owned up to what they had done, had not sought amnesty, there should have been investigations and prosecutions. Now, that I think would have been one way to begin to deal with, even at a symbolic level, 
I think that's one of the biggest mistakes we made. There was no political will to take forward those recommendations. And so partly that's what we're facing. And so there's a level of anger that remains from perpetrators having been allowed to just walk off scot-free. That's one thing. The other element of it is this inability of South Africa to create opportunities. Now, there's always big struggles, big fights over even the smallest crumbs. Extreme levels of trauma among public servants, for example. These are behaviors that in many ways come from the past and we've never dealt with them. And so they are being transmitted to the next generation. There's just collective healing. The TRC only began to do the work and touched the surface. That's part of the effects of our inability to deal with that is what we see. Yeah. Violence that is perpetuated structurally at an institutional level, but also deeply personal levels. That's why we're seeing, I mean, the kind of femicides, the deeply frustrated masculinities that are unable to find other ways of expressing themselves. And so people try to wield power. And what do they do? They turn to the person next to them, a partner, a child. There's a sort of collective healing that's still necessary. You're curious and committed to looking at the linkages between the past and the present. And you talked about how people use the stories of the past to maintain their hold on the present. Right now in South Africa, I think there's deep reflection around the post-1994 <laughs> journey. How were you experiencing that moment, given everything that was going on around you? Did you see that as a time of potential transformation? I mean, it was a time of great hope that something would change, opportunities that previous generations had not had, my parents had not had would become available to us. I think what stayed with me was my parents instilled in us a sense that opportunities are going to arise, but you've got to work, you've got to go get them. And I remember there was always this sense that something had changed. After 1994, school was closed, we were sent home around the elections, and then we went back to school. And there was just, I remember a big sense of relief that we still had a school we could go back to. There was a very strong sense, and you could hear gunshots in the distance at night. There's always the sense that the school was going to be attacked. And it was just big relief coming back and realizing we still had a school, and we could continue learning. And we could then begin to look forward to a different time, a different world in which we had opportunities. And the violence? And the violence? Abated, or was it pretty much the it same? It carried or? on for a while in that area. For somebody who's so deeply embedded in past and the future, it seems to me interesting for you to reflect on the extent to which this new South Africa has in some ways been not able or willing or, as you said, wanting to truly do the painful work of holding its past to account. Is there a reckoning that needs to happen? You know, when you hear about how corruption and the report we released last year, Parry and our partners, on state capture, we suddenly woke up and went, oh, we've arrived at this place where so many post-colonial societies arrive at. And this is the same thing that's happening with the land debate. My fear has always been, if we're unable to do this in a peaceful way, in a way in which we look at each other in the eye and we have the difficult conversations we need to have, it's going to happen through violence. It's going to be people who are fed up and who are now beginning to invade land more and more. And those land invasions sooner or later are going to lead to violence. There are people who've got nowhere else to return. 
the state is not doing enough, is unable to do enough, is facing constraints, and they see the old patterns continue to repeat themselves, what's going to happen is the anger boils over. It leads to, I mean, that's why South Africa is called the protest nation, street protests about service delivery, about housing, about land. So there's massive reckoning of the past that needs to happen. I'm no longer sure what that needs to look like. Yeah. We've become a society in which people have become so self-interested, so self-absorbed. And so the moment where we were all focused on building a society that was cohesive, that moment has passed. I mean, the nation building project has run aground in my mind. Wow. So what's the alternative? <laughs> Miniature power know. struggles all over the place. We often in these conversations look at parallels elsewhere, but I think all over the world, again, that mm. notion of what is a nation and what is our cohesive glue is for a lot of people coming into question when there's such deep divides between yeah. people and such rampant individualism. And in this country, with the challenges that it has economically and socially, in the absence of a nation-building exercise, what are we left with? Despair. I mean, <laughs> despair. <laughs> and this is the work I'm involved in now. What it now comes down to, for me, is to build a state, is to build cities that are inclusive, that can deliver on the demands of the most marginalized. That really is my hope now. The symbolic stuff around Nelson Mandela and, and whatnot, what it left a huge gap in is this question of how do you build public administrations where the state plays a significant role in guiding the development of the country, dealing with inequalities. And we thought of it in terms of politics, and we thought if you get the politics right, the rest will follow, and it hasn't happened. Now, I think if we can build a state that is staffed by people who have the right ethos in terms of wanting to make life better for others, mm. for those at the margins, then we can begin to have a different conversation, begin to turn things around. We can deal with corruption in those self-interested networks that have captured the state. That's the conversation we've been trying to drive. You use storytelling in your work and you're interested in the role of stories and their ability to bridge the past and the present. And Do stories play a role in helping us to understand what's happened? You know, how is nation building <laughs> run adrift? How have we landed with the story that feels so familiar, the post-colonial meltdown. So in order to tell a different story, mm. to start to redirect the story to a different ending that isn't what one can expect now. If I'm born in poverty, I'm going to die in poverty. If I'm born yeah. a woman, I have a very large chance that I'll be a victim of sexual violence. How do we help people to rewrite their own stories and possibly to share them and tell them as a, an empowering act? I think stories are absolutely critical. Often the problem is the people in power don't pause enough to listen to the stories of people's experiences and listen deeply to each other's stories. It's difficult to find the spaces, to create those spaces. How do we find ways of making things better at a structural level to fix these problems? So the stories, I think, they carry enormous power. Now, in the age of fake news, the problem is that people live in such bubbles yes. and networks where they hear the stories they want to hear. I haven't thought enough about how we shift out of those modes and we find ways in which to interject. 
it's those kinds of things that we need to constantly, I think, be fighting against. You know, there's lots of different threads in your activism, in your work in trying to influence the world that you live in, and all of them right now in this unsatisfactory place, frustrating place. Where are you personally and emotionally right now in terms of how you think you will start to shape the state in the way that you describe or play a meaningful role? I'm at a point where I'm wanting to go into a reflective space for a while and go and write a book about um, the stories of some of the people I've worked with who are land activists. Partly because the way in which the discussion around expropriation of land without compensation is taking place, a lot of it is very ill-informed. There's a role in which those of us who've been reading and thinking and looking at experiences of other countries can help the debate in some ways. And so there's an intervention that's needed in the form of writing something that's going to endure and be a tool that we can think with. But let me ask you here, will that be taken up by the people who are in charge of these or will they ignore it in order to frame a process that in some way starts to just reinforce the status quo? I think there's an opportunity. We've come a long way. When we started really trying to expose what the Ngonyama Trust was doing in Guadalajara, there was nobody who would listen. Through many, many years of doing research, going to parliament, writing op-eds, finally this thing came to a point where parliament, government is taking seriously that there's a fundamental problem here. There's a fundamental problem with some of the deals that were struck at the end of apartheid, which is what the Ngoyama Trust is. It was signed into law three days before the elections in 1994. That's just crookery by people in power. Now, what that has allowed to happen is that ordinary members of the public living in places where the Ngoyama Trust operates have suddenly begun to see it for what it is and are beginning to speak out against it. So I think those kinds of interventions are necessary. It's necessary to be writing about these things. How do you self-identify? Because you're a man raised in KwaZulu-Natal. You're I, stepping uh, into a really hot <laughs> space, <laughs> I think. And I'm curious what you wear when you go into that place of getting into the thick of really challenging this deeply rooted and very powerful space. I think of myself as an academic primarily, but I think of all identities as inherently unstable. And I like just being able to play with them and destabilize identities all the time. I think largely of identity in geographical terms and in terms of movement and also in terms of language. So I would not identify myself as Zulu, I'd identify myself as Zulu speaking. But then I also own all the languages I speak. The destabilization of male identities and mm. traditional male power is a lot of what you're talking about. Yeah. As a man, does that feature for you as a person watching around the world men holding on to power desperately and reacting to the challenges to their power from the Me Too movement to the nature of leaders right now? You know, we're seeing a deep challenge to male identity. Does it come up for you in your own work, either academically or socially or personally? It does in many ways. Professionally, it's what I'm dealing with right now. I think that very instability, in terms of people saying, I don't know how to respond to this positively. Right. I think that's a good thing. Yeah. What we don't do enough of is allow ourselves to be uncomfortable and to use that 
discomfort productively. We need more of that where people are being asked to look at themselves and asked to be uncomfortable. And men, because of last however many millennia of not being asked to be in uncomfortable positions, it's become naturalized that these structures of patriarchal power that we see. And they're being destabilized, I think, in incredibly powerful and useful ways, and we need more of that. So, and as men, we need to learn to take a step back or let the space be owned by others and accept that I'll be told what to do. Where do you see spaces right now for people who want to jump in and actively engage with whatever speaks to them in terms of social change? It's that kind of spontaneous, usually leaderless movement. I think those movements are very powerful and are able to make change in ways that are unimaginable. We imagine change in neat ways. There's a way in which we think and we draw up these theories of change and we think this is how it's going to go and then something comes and just cuts right across that. And to remain reflective, remain critical of mm. our own positionings and the things that we do and keep going until something else comes and whacks us in directions that we hadn't anticipated. I've come to think that is inevitable, that we think we're doing the right thing and we're headed in the right direction, but actually we lose touch with what are the most pressing things. We become drunk on our own power. Yeah. We get caught up in trying to keep the structure going. And I've come to accept that that's what we need to be open to. Which is where you are now. Yeah, it is. Will life take you back to KwaZulu-Natal? I mean, do you see yourself coming full circle in a way, <laughs> going back there? And I, will. I mean, it seems like you have a real fire and sense of purpose around structural change there. I mean, I go there frequently because my parents are there and I've got deep roots there. I cannot live in KwaZulu-Natal. I've accepted that. If I lived in KwaZulu-Natal, I'd probably be dead by now. I wouldn't be able to hold my tongue seeing all the injustice that goes on in that place. It's a violent place, and so you're always opening yourself up to violence, and then you start opening your mouth and challenging things that are happening. That very visceral violence you describe, I think, is a lived reality for so many people, and yet it's actually not discussed all that much, this kind of slow violence concept, which is mm. the daily abuses and infractions that start to eat away at your sense of agency and Cape hope. Town. Microaggressions one mm. faces every day in Cape Town that became unbearable. No, I think there's something important there that we haven't dealt with. Yeah. Not at all. And also just the South African identity. If there is a collective one, it in itself is so born of violence. Yeah. There's an everyday violence in the way that people treat each other and aggressiveness, just that, that not even seeing. Yeah. Oh, but thank you for raising those things and bringing a voice into these discussions that's challenging us to think about our own identities and what we've inherited mm. and what we have the ability to reshape as we go along. It's an interesting question for all of us, particularly now. So thank you. Oh, great. Thank you. Mbongi Sene so powerfully animates this idea of imposed identities. The extent to which identity, and particularly cultural identity, is a construct given to us at birth and reconstructed over time through narrative. And at a time when nationalism is rising around the world, it's so important for us to recognize this construction and acknowledge that there's nothing essential about identity at all. Right? Today, around the world, we see this, this wistful longing for the past stories that get elevated to the level of political discourse about the good old days. But whose good old days? Whose past was so great that we want to retrieve it or relive it? And of course, the good old days were only good for a handful of people. 
And it's those people that keep telling the story over and over, holding on to it at all costs. Mbongiseni seems to be arguing for a reckoning with this story and the past. A reckoning, not a glorifying of it. But it is a painful reckoning, isn't it? The pain of people throwing off their identities and seeking to redefine them on their own terms. And it's this pain that becomes the flip side of the nationalism and patriarchy we're seeing so much of today. If we accepted this inherent fluidity of identity, could that maybe be the first step in lessening the pain? Could it be a creative process of acquainting and reacquainting ourselves with ourselves rather than with a story that's told to us? Courageous Conversations is supported by the Ford Foundation and produced by Jen Warren, with music courtesy of Benjamin Verdery. Follow us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Search for Courageous Conversations. You can also visit gillianreilly.com slash podcasts for more information or to listen online. And we have a new website. Visit soundpage.fm slash courageous conversations. Thanks for listening.